Well, turn with me to Song of Solomon chapter 1. And in our opening message on Song of Solomon back in the fall, we said that since this is the revelation of God concerning the very highest ideals of human marriage, that we would take our time and savor each verse as we went along. And we've done that for 19 messages now. It's been a wonderful journey. For me, I hope it has been for you as well. It's been instructive. Just to get a flavor of the big picture of Song of Solomon one last time, I'd like to walk through select portions of the entire poem and we'll build what we'll call a brief theology of marital love. A brief theology of marital love. And sprinkled in along the way, as I mentioned last week and this morning, I'd like to give you an example of a couple that endeavored to rise to the heights of what a godly marriage is supposed to be. Puritan pastor Richard Baxter and his wife Margaret. So we're going to jump right in here, a brief theology of marital love, and we'll have some concepts or we'll have some truths here. The first truth is marital love glorifies God. Marital love glorifies God. The story opens with the exclamation of Shulamith that she has a growing desire to be with Solomon. Both of them likely have known each other as children, but now they've blossomed into Adults and and love has come between them. Chapter 1, verse 2. She exclaims, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And now Shulamith expresses her self-doubt to the young ladies who follow her around in the story, the daughters of Jerusalem. She's been working the vineyards of Solomon since she was a little girl, and she's not sure if she'll measure up. In verse 5, she says, I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. And after that exclamation of self-doubt, she tests the waters now with Solomon. She asks Solomon where he will be so that she can come see him, so that she can be someone special to him. In verse 7, Shulamith says to Solomon, Tell me, you whom, your soul, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? She wants to be special. And what does he say? Will he receive her? Verse 8 Solomon says, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. Now they're out in the pastures together and he declares to her in terms that they would understand culturally that she is the most special woman of all to him. He says in verse 9, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. It may be that he's even given her some jewelry, which he references here in verse 10. But already we begin to see a potential shadow over their growing love. He has compared her to other women, the metaphorical horses of Pharaoh's stables. And while she is his favorite, the implication is that the other women, likely at this point at least one queen, are in fact already present. And we said this before, Naamah the Ammonite was probably already married to Solomon. But for now, the love between the two of them is growing. And having been together out in the pastures, 
Solomon, now the scene switches to him being back in the palace, back home and away from her. And he's thinking about her. Why is he thinking about her? Because he can still smell her perfume. Verse 12, while the king was on his couch, it's just a word that means in his familiar places, my nard gave forth its fragrance. And then later, they're together once again. They're out in the wilderness in the forest and they declare their delight to one another. And in a sense, they're, they're playing house. In verse 15, he says to her, Behold, my beautiful, my love, behold, you are beautiful. I'm sorry, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And she returns this. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. And here's where they play house. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. Shulamith is pretending as if the forest is their home. And why is she doing this? Because life at Solomon's palace is complex and difficult. A, A growing number of political marriages People coming from all over to see him. And so for this moment, home is the forest where it's just the two of them. But he eventually issues an invitation to Shulamith. She is invited to come, apparently with many guests, to a banquet hosted by Solomon. Perhaps some banqueting hall out in the vineyards, a wine tasting house where food could be served. Chapter 2, verse 3. This is Shulamith speaking. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. This may have been the most likely place in the story where he makes a public declaration, declaration of his love for her and his desire to marry her, asking for her hand at an official function. Now we don't see her answer, that comes later, But in this particular moment, she's swooning. Of course she is. Verse 5, she says, Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. The Hebrew for sick with love is sick with love. There is no other way around it. She's just swooning. And as she's swooning with love, she takes a moment for the first of three times in the poem to warn the younger girls to wait on love, to guard their hearts, to protect themselves In verse 7 of chapter 2, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Well, this is romantic stuff. This would make a terrific movie. This is the beginning of a love story of epic proportions, the, the precursor to a marriage which is characterized by intense, intimate times together, a love that at the end of the book, Shulamith will say is stronger than death itself. The point I want to make is the very existence of Song of Solomon inspired by the Holy Spirit in the Word of God tells us that marital love glorifies God. It proves that some sort of artificial differentiation between the physical and the spiritual is a man-made distinction. All of the Christian life is spiritual up to and including our marriages as God intended them to be. And we see clearly that all the Christian life is spiritual including our marriages, in the example of Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter was born in 1615 and he lived till 1691. He was a Puritan pastor. He was an evangelist. He was a prolific writer of practical theology. He was the Christian writer of the time in England. 
He married Margaret Charlton, and they were married for 19 years before she went home to be with the Lord. But I want to go back first, and I think this is an important thing to understand. May as well do this tonight. We keep saying he was a Puritan. Well, what is a Puritan? Probably not what you think. When we say Puritan today, our our general thought is old-fashioned, stodgy, gloomy church people who condemned anything happy and cheerful, who believed that fun was of the devil, and who certainly thought that human sexuality was straight from Satan's lair itself. That's our picture of being a Puritan. Not exactly and not even close. The Puritans were believers, more specifically a group of pastors in England in the late 1500s and 1600s. Many came to America, and there was an American Puritan movement as well with such men as Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s. But the the Puritan name had nothing to do with personal purity or prudishness of any kind. Puritans were called Puritans because of their soteriology, their doctrine of salvation, and their ecclesiology, their doctrine of the church. They believed that the Protestant Church of England, which had been a response against Catholicism during the Great Reformation, was still way too Catholic. And they wanted to purify the church of these Catholic practices. The Catholic practices which still defined, in many ways, the Protestant Church of England. They also refused to use the official religious guide of the Church of England called the Book of Common Prayer. They refused to use it. And in fact, the Church of England had several thousand pastors who were Puritans. This was a big movement. And they began shepherding their churches toward a biblical soteriology, a biblical view of salvation, and a biblical ecclesiology view of the church. But you might remember that the Church of England was the government-run church. Never a good idea. And the Puritans believed wholeheartedly that only the Bible could be the authority for the church, not the government. But in 1662, the Act of Uniformity was passed by Parliament, which said that any pastor refusing to use the Book of Common Prayer by August 24th, 1662, would be relieved of his duties. And August 24th, 1662, became known as the Great Ejection. Some 2,500 ministers of the gospel were ejected from their churches all on the same day. They then became known as nonconformists. The nonconformists, the Puritans, and anyone who followed them for the next 150 years could not hold public office, they couldn't receive a university degree, and they were generally excluded from the mainstream of society for the sake of the gospel. This is why they endured this. Well, from then on, those 2,500 ministers of the gospel, they preached wherever they could. They preached in fields, they preached in forests, they preached next to streams, they rented houses, they rented buildings, they went underground in non-Church of England churches. And so keeping that background in your mind, especially the great ejection of August 24th, 1662, it found Richard Baxter at the age of 47 without a church. So we back up a few years a few years before to 1662, to Baxter's pastorate in a little town called Kitterminster. And in Kitterminster, in the, the county of Worcester, it was a community made up mostly of cloth makers and weavers. It was a cottage industry town, just about 1,800 adults, just a small little village, really. And when Baxter came to Kitterminster, one family on each street, maybe, And there were only a few streets. One family out of the 800 families honored God in what Puritans call family worship. And that was an indicator of whether somebody was truly in Christ or not. 
By the end of his ministry in 1661, there were streets on which every family was a believer. On Sundays, Baxter wrote, quote, You might hear 100 families singing the psalms and repeating the sermons as you pass through the streets. 600 people, one-third of all the adults in the town got saved under his ministry. 900 adults crowded into Baxter's church every Lord's Day. This is half the town. Put it in perspective, that's like 200, 250,000 people coming to church in Bakersfield. Well, Margaret Charlton arrived in the mid-1650s. Her mother was recently widowed for a second time, and her mother was a very wealthy woman who craved the truth of the Scriptures. And so with the death of her second husband, Margaret's mother moved the two of them to Kitterminster. Why? To be in Baxter's church, to hear truth. Margaret, as a teenager, was shallow. She was self-focused. She was not happy about the move to the small town. And she was definitely not happy that half the town all went to Baxter's church. An entire community, essentially, endeavoring to serve Christ. And she didn't want any part of it. But in 1657, Baxter preached a sermon series called Conversion. And the 21-year-old Margaret began to realize that she was not in good standing with God. She realized she had a sin problem. And that brings us to our second part of our brief theology of marital love. Marital love must deal with sin. Marital love must deal with sin. In our story in Song of Solomon, we now move forward to springtime. Shulamith has now gone back home to her home in southern Lebanon, her family home. She's had some months now to think on Solomon's marriage proposal. But is she ready for marriage? And the scene opens with her excitement and nervousness that Solomon is on his way. Solomon is, is coming. Verse 8 of chapter 2, The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. In verse 9, My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks. And in verses 10 through 13, Solomon invites her to come away with him. It's springtime and he wants to be together. They haven't seen each other likely for months. And so he invites her. Verse 10, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. But she's reluctant. She's reticent. In verse 14, she's like a dove tucked into the cleft of a rock. She's hesitant to come out. Why is this? They need to talk. They have issues they have to work through. Verse 15, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Shulamith has apparently not given her answer to Solomon because there is a major hurdle between them. The most likely candidate for the major hurdle is that she would be marrying the most sought-after man on earth at this time. Only growing in popularity, And the offers from foreign kings to give Solomon one of their daughters just keep pouring in. But apparently she determines that she can win his love. She's head over heels in love with Solomon. And in fact, as they spend this time together in the countryside near her childhood home, they're almost overcome with desire for one another. So she shoos him away. But even in her shooing him away, she uses very suggestive language. In verse 16 of chapter 2, My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn. Remember we said this means turn around, run away. 
Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. In other words, run away over the hills from which you came. There's an obvious sexual suggestion here as well. But before they're even married, they have to begin to come to grips with some issues. For Solomon, what will turn into a sinful inability to say no to many wives. A marriage must deal with the fact of sin. It has to. Love can be strong, but sin is a very fierce competitor. And the best marriages deal with sin in self and sin in the other. And spouses can come alongside one another trying to help. And to do, as the, as the Puritans put it, to help mortify sin or kill sin. Margaret Charlton had to deal with her own sin. She was not in Christ. She heard Baxter's sermon series on conversion. And one of the texts which Baxter preached in the sermon series on conversion was Romans 8-9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Sometime after Margaret's death, Baxter found some papers, in fact, many papers that she had written during this time, papers the Puritans called self-judgment papers, a spiritual self-evaluation. And Margaret had written, and he didn't know it until after she was gone home, she had gone home to heaven, she had written a self-judgment paper on his sermon on Romans 8-9. He had preached 10 points in this sermon And she filtered every point, she filtered her life rather through every point. For example, Baxter's first point was this. The Spirit of Christ is the author of the Scriptures and therefore soothes your disposition to it and guideth you by it. In other words, if you have the Spirit of Christ, you love the Bible. Margaret wrote this, judgment number one. I fear then that I have not the Spirit of Christ, for I yet feel no love for God's Word but I am questioning the truth of it or at best quarreling with it. And she continued self-judging through all ten points of the sermon. And she finished this paper by writing, quote, To go no further, it is now evident that I am a graceless person. I am none of Christ's. And she was convicted. Now, Baxter and Baxter's mother had long been praying for Margaret's conversion to Christ and After this self-judgment, she began struggling hard against all of her bad habits, her self-centeredness, which had characterized her and characterized her for many more months, but she couldn't stop her own sin. She was powerless. But Baxter wrote, quote, but presently God seemed suddenly to welcome this returning soul. What do we call that? That's regeneration. She was a new creation in Christ. Just after her salvation when all the people in Kidderminster who knew her were rejoicing at her salvation, there were many praying for her. Margaret began to start coughing, and it got worse. Some now think it was tuberculosis. All known medical treatments were tried. Later in her journal, Margaret wrote, December 30th, 1659 was my worst day. I did not think then to be alive this day. Her doctor told her she was dying, she wasn't going to last. At this point, her body, her body was totally racked and consumed with this disease. At her side was Baxter and Margaret's mother and other believers, as Baxter writes, who were, quote, at prayer for this woman and compassion made all of us extraordinarily fervent. On New Year's Day, 1660, early in the morning, Margaret sat up and began bleeding profusely from her nose. 
And all of a sudden, her breathing got better. Her cough stopped. And for all of his life, Baxter would credit the Lord with a miraculous healing. Margaret got stronger quickly until on April 10th of 1660, she declared a personal day of thanksgiving to the Lord for her full recovery. And for the rest of her life, she would celebrate day of thanksgiving, as she called it, every April 10th in honor of the Lord's mercy. After her death, Baxter found papers that Margaret had written, and one of them was written in years later on a day of thanksgiving, on an April 10th. And it was a renewal of her salvation covenant with God. Now, we understand that theologically this isn't necessary, but you can hear her love for the Lord in this. She writes, This being set, this being a day set apart for returning thanks to God for His mercy in delivering me from the gates of death, these people being that they have earnestly prayed to the throne of grace on my behalf, I here now renew my covenant with the Almighty God and resolve by His grace to keep a fresh sense of His mercy on my soul and a greater sense of my own sin. And then she writes pages and pages and pages of God's grace and kindness to her. And she majors on a determination to mortify sin in her life as an expression of her love to God. And she ends the paper with an admonition to herself. She says, Away then, O my carnal heart, retire to God, the only satisfying object Let thy love to God be fixed and transcendent. Amen. She was a spiritual woman of God. Very spiritual. And that brings us to our third part of our brief theology of marital love. Marital love is a spiritual bond. Marital love is a spiritual bond. Solomon and Shulamith are still not married. She's considering what to do in all likelihood, but... An event happens which apparently convinces her that she can't live without him, and that is a dream. Chapter 3, verse 1. On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. What is this? She's dreaming that they're together, that Solomon is in her bed with her, but she can't find him, and there's a sense of panic. In in verses 2 through 4, she dreams that she's running around the city, running around Jerusalem, running around Solomon's home and and what would be her home. And when she finds him, she grabs a hold of him and would not let him go. She's bonded to Solomon at the heart level. They've formed a spiritual bond between them before they've even married. This is one of the reasons that we ought to take such care with each other in our marriages because you have a spiritual bond. You can hurt the other person more than anybody else on earth can. The other has made their heart vulnerable, so we're tender with that love. We, we treat our marriages like we're carrying a newborn baby. It's a wondrous bond. It's a mysterious bond. It's a spiritual bond that we honor and cherish. And this spiritual bond was one which would develop over time between Richard and Margaret. After her salvation and her wondrous recovery from illness, Margaret threw herself into learning the scriptures and theology. In fact, the house that she and her mother lived in was a large mansion right next door to the church. Baxter was often in their home and Margaret would bring her theological and spiritual questions to him. But most of his answers came in the form of letters. He would write her letters and then have them delivered about 30 feet next door. Why did he do this? Baxter was a confirmed bachelor. And he believed he couldn't be a a pastor and a husband and do both well. And he sensed that Margaret was interested in him for more than purely theological reasons. 
And so despite their house being next door to the church, Baxter most often communicated in writing to keep his distance and not encourage her affection. But now the winds of change were blowing. It was becoming increasingly clear that the Puritans were in trouble at the hands of the English Parliament. In 1660, Baxter went to London to fight the cause and to try to persuade influential people to not lay down the law in regard to standardizing all the Church of England churches. And you have to understand, in 1660, Richard Baxter was the John MacArthur of his time. He was the most well-known preacher in England with a growing ministry. Baxter would learn later that Margaret was devastated when he went to London and that she had pined for him terribly, both as her pastor and as a man she had hopes for. And so she and her mother moved to London to continue hearing Baxter's preaching and to be close to him. While in London, two major events happened in 1661 that changed Baxter's mind about marriage. The first event that happened, it became very clear that the writing was on the wall, the great ejection was coming, and he sensed that he would need a wife. And second, Margaret's mother died leaving her literally with no living family members on earth. And so Baxter spoke to Margaret, and he discussed with her the fact that his ministry back in Kidderminster was going to end when Parliament ejected all Puritan pastors from their pulpits. His life as a pastor would be writing. It would be preaching anywhere he could, in fields, in houses, in rented buildings, maybe even being in danger. Her life would not be the traditional life of a pastor's wife but would be perilous and uncertain. And she wholeheartedly pledged herself to Baxter. Now remember, the great ejection happened on August 24th, 1662. Two and a half weeks later, Richard and Margaret were married on September the 10th. Richard and Margaret were wholly Puritan in their married life, and that may not, that's not what you think it means. They honored God in the home above all, they shared in their prayers. They shared in their reading of the scriptures. They, they felt very much more than having a personal quiet time. It was even more important for them to, to pray and read the scriptures together. They maintained decency, order, kindness in the home. They practiced what the Puritans called family government, which is just the husband leading the home and the wife working hard to make his work more effective. That She saw herself as a Genesis 2 helper. Now, to many people's surprise, when they think of Puritans, they're not aware that the Puritans believed in the whole person in marriage, that there was, of course, a spiritual beauty in their marriage, which was focused on Christ, focused on eternity. But this was equally expressed in frequent physical closeness as well, frequent and regular sexual interaction aimed at pleasing one another. They aimed for the whole person in their marriage. One biographer described Richard and Margaret as, quote, two souls who love God and love each other with that sublime spiritual beauty in which souls are wed. Baxter and Margaret, they saw marriage in very, very positive terms. They saw it as a gift. They saw it as a calling. They saw it as a ministry to one another, something to work hard for, a discipline to strive after. In fact, they espoused the Puritan view of marriage, which said that when you are choosing a spouse, it shouldn't be necessarily someone that you do love. It should be someone that you would love with a a steady affection and service that marriage isn't based on an emotion, but rather should be based on character, on godliness, on commitment, on dependability, on responsibility. That this would grow into delight. This would grow into delighting in one another. And for them, it did. 
It brings us to the fourth part of our brief theology of marital love. Marital love is meant for delight. Marital love is meant for delight. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, pictures Solomon having sent his best lither, almost a, a portable room with a couch, which is carried by servants, to go all the way north to pick up Shulamith at her home in southern Lebanon. The strong implication here is that she has sent word to Solomon that says what? Yes, I'm ready to get married. And accompanying the lither are 60 of his best warriors, and Shulamith is brought to Jerusalem like a queen. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, is a long expression of Solomon's joy and delight on their wedding night. He begins by describing her eyes, then moving downward, her hair, her mouth, her neck, her breasts. And then he expresses his abandonment to her love. In verse 6 of chapter 4, he says, Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Now, back in chapter 2, verse 17, what their wish is is now coming true. He describes the anticipated glory of her love, incidentally, including in verse 12, the fact that she is a virgin, that she has saved herself for him. Now, your Bible may label Solomon as still speaking in verse 16, but it's better to understand that Shulamith is now speaking. She refers to her garden, her body, and since they have not yet consummated their wedding, it's still her garden. But she issues a glorious invitation to her own body, as it were, to respond to Solomon. In verse 16 of chapter 4, she's speaking to her own body. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, to blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. In chapter 5, verse 1, really should be understood more in the present tense that they are consummating their marriage. We would read it more accurately in the present tense. I am coming to my garden, my sister, my bride. I am gathering my myrrh with my spice. I am eating my honeycomb with my honey. I am drinking my wine with my milk. Marital love is meant for this delight. God intends it. God made it. It was His idea. It was His objective for marriage. The, the physical union of the married couple creates a bond, maintains a bond. And it is a mutual gift that you give to one another. For Richard and Margaret, their marriage was very much a mutual gift to one another. They cherished each other. They had a bond that was real. They maintained that bond. But it certainly wasn't without its challenges. Baxter had openly said for a long time that he was dead set against marriage for himself as a minister of the gospel. And with all these repeated determinations, and he said it publicly and frequently, given the fact that when he and Margaret were married, he was 47 and she was 26. A lot of murmuring happened in Kithermister, I guarantee you. To put that in perspective, Baxter became a pastor when Margaret was two years old. But Margaret turned out to be a godly woman in all respects. And their love and devotion to one another was real and it was evident to everyone who knew them. Both of them suffered from various physical problems. Margaret had migraines her entire adult life. She frequently had chest congestion problems as well. Every two weeks from the time she was a little girl, she had a two to three long day migraine and that never went away her entire life. Richard had numbers of chronic ailments. One biographer wrote, quote, Richard was a veritable museum of diseases. But they decided that by marrying, they could help one another, the stronger one helping the weaker one 
with whatever was, was required. They faced many other challenges together as well. They often had to move houses, uprooting their home life, sometimes due to harassment that Richard was receiving. He was the object of continual reviling and ridicule and spying on him by his spiritual enemies, government officials, Church of England officials. And when a landlord of a house that they lived in would discover that he was a nonconformist, sometimes they were evicted even the same day. Both of them, of course, were highly aware of the other's sin. Margaret was high-strung. She struggled with fears of many kinds, though she battled those fears with her faith in the Lord. Richard was overly spontaneous and could be moody, downcast, and irritable when he didn't get his way. They both, both knew this about each other. And yet, despite knowing each other's sin tendencies so very well, they had a unique and tender closeness which both of them attributed to their one faith, to their one unified hope and glory. They spoke often of the fact that their sin would soon be taken care of. They were very heavenly minded. And they also believed in working at their marriage, that their sin wasn't something they swept under the carpet. They discussed it with one another. They, they helped each other. They worked at communicating and meeting each other's needs. And they committed to rejoicing in the Lord together. It became a habit for them to end each day, to begin each day rather, and to end each day by singing a psalm together. They went through all the psalms on an average four or five times every year. Margaret was acutely aware of her own sin tendencies and she felt that since the greatest calling of a Christian woman was to her husband, she believed that pouring herself into loving him was a tremendous source of her own sanctification. In other words, this didn't just make her a better wife, it made her a better Christian and eliminated a lot of other sin problems. This included, by the way, being a sanctifying help to Baxter when he was overly rash and spontaneous In his speech, apparently he took after the Apostle Peter somewhat. When he had spoken sharply to someone, she was there to remind him of his Christian duty to patience. And although Margaret was high-strung emotionally, she was very determined that her emotions should never control her tongue, should never control her speech. She had a reputation with Richard for calmness, deliberation, saying nothing to hurt or saying nothing that she would regret. No matter his mood, she remained calm and was a calming influence on him. And this brought him great comfort and it helped his sanctification. Richard wrote that she had such a devotion to God and a strict obedience to the Lord, meaning the way she spoke to him, that through Margaret, quote, God heaped on me many and great obligations to love and tenderness. In other words, Richard responded to Margaret's calm with a renewed determination himself. Margaret knew her own sin tendencies and she gladly enlisted Richard to pray for her and to help her with these sin tendencies. The one episode of likely tuberculosis was, that nearly took her life was one of only four times that she was in danger of death, one of those being from smallpox. She suffered the recurring migraines her entire adult life, and this coupled with other physical challenges led to a fearfulness that she deemed to be sinful, and she wanted help with that. She also wanted help with the fact that she knew she had an overly sensitive nature. She was hurt too easily by others. And here was her problem. She was very good at picking up the unspoken needs and issues of others. But when other people couldn't read her mind, this hurt her feelings. This is what Baxter said. Quote, as she could understand people much by their looks and hints, so she expected all should know her mind without expressing it. 
which bred frustrations and discontent. See also normal marriage, right? (laughs) But she knew those weaknesses. She fought them spiritually because she believed she was powerless in herself to do so. There's a fifth part of our brief theology of marital love. We'll call this marital love must be guarded and nurtured. Marital love must be guarded and nurtured. For the second time in Song of Solomon, we come to another dream, which Shulamith has, but this time it's sometime later, maybe even years after they're married. And there's a sad revealing of apathy that has set into their marriage at some level, at least on her part. The dream opens with her hearing the knock on her bedroom door. Chapter 5, verse 2, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. It's Solomon, and he's eager for love with her. And her response, I paraphrase verse 3, I'm all ready for bed, maybe some other time. She hears the latch of the door jiggling. Verse 4 says that her heart was thrilled within her. It's actually a word which can mean groaned within her, but thrilled is a translational option. But in either case, she does eventually have a change of heart. And she gets up in verse 5 to open the door to Solomon. But he's gone. And he's left something on the door. Verse 5, I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. Solomon has smeared the myrrh that he intended for their time together on the door handle. And now she has regret. She calls out for him. In verse 7, she finds the watchman of the city and in her dream they beat her. The, The point being that there are severe consequences for not guarding, not nurturing your love. She runs into her friends, the daughters of Jerusalem, and she gives them a message for Solomon. In verse 8, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. But they question her. Verse 9 basically says, given how you've treated him, why should we look for him? What's so special about him? And in the beautiful soliloquy, in verses 10 through 16, she describes her attraction to Solomon and why she loves him. And she ends her declaration, the end of verse 16, this is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. But now she wakes up from her dream. She looks to her side. The dream is over. And there he is. And she remembers that they have loved one another even that night. And she's relieved. Chapter 6, verse 2. My beloved has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Their love is renewed. And Solomon praises her in very elegant and very very non-sexual terms. The important part of this conversation is that he's pursuing her he's cherishing her and she hears some very very important words in chapter 6 verse 9 this is him speaking to her there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number in other words i'm surrounded by women verse 9 my dove my perfect one is the only one the only one of her mother pure to her who bore her 
Solomon is saying that although by this time he has a minimum of 140 other women in his life, she is his true love. She is his only love. And the other women all attest to this as well in the next couple of verses, that she is his love. Even they know it. And nurturing their love takes on an even more intense effort. Shulamith and Solomon go out to the country for a day in verses 11 and 12. And Shulamith starts dancing for Solomon in verse 13. And apparently the daughters of Jerusalem are still hanging around Solomon. And Solomon says, why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? In other words, go away. This is none of your business. And they, she shoes away all the, the, the girls. And in response, unlike his non-sexual loving description of, Sol, of Shulamith in chapter 6, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, he gives a powerfully personal description and he ends with an expression of his flaming desire for her in chapter 7, verse 6. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. What's the lesson here? You don't let apathy sneak in. You fight it. You guard your love. You nurture your love. And that takes effort. It takes effort. Well, Shulamith and Solomon are growing closer And she's growing more assured of his love. Chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. But Shulamith has a plan. She's going to try to grow their love even more. Now one of the ways that Margaret Baxter grew the love between herself and Richard was by being a tremendous helper to him. That's how she grew their love. Before they married... According to Baxter and everyone who knew him, he was hopeless in terms of caring for himself. He genuinely genuinely believed he was not long for this world, so he didn't really try. He didn't really keep, keep house. He didn't keep himself. And although she had been raised in a wealthy household, Margaret took to cleaning every corner of their home, making certain it was always ready for guests. In fact, one of the three times that Richard went to prison for preaching without a license from the government... He landed in the Clerkenwell jail for a six-month sentence. Margaret packed her things, had her best bed brought, and went to prison with him for six months. Richard later said it was one of the highlights of their life together. (laughs) I briefly mentioned that Margaret's mother was a lady widowed twice, a woman of great means, wealth, and social position. To marry Richard was a giant step down for Margaret in in terms of social status and certainly financial provision, but she did so wholeheartedly. And in fact, this gave her a greater appreciation for for those in financial need. During her self-judgment paper, she judged that as an unbeliever, she had no care for the needs of those less fortunate than her. But now, not only did she love and care for her husband, but representing them as a family, she spent her married life helping others as best she could as well. In one of their moves, they ended up in the town of Acton and they rented a large home big enough for Richard to preach in. And in order to make sure the community knew that they were welcome, Margaret prepared their home for people to basically walk in anytime they wanted. They would come here Baxter preach several mornings every single week and every evening as well. And so their home was open almost continually so that he could give instruction in the word of God. And they would just cram the house to the rafters with people 
Eventually, they settled in London, and Baxter had an idea. His idea was, how about we wait around until somebody asks me to preach? He writes this of Margaret, quote, She saw me as too dull and backward to seek employment till I was called. In other words, she felt like he needed to be preaching. So she asked him a question. What kind of place do you want to preach in? And he began describing a great hall that he would preach in if he could. Someplace large where many could hear the gospel of Christ. Well, Margaret was fanatical about giving Richard opportunities to preach. One biographer wrote that Margaret engaged in, quote, a constant scheming to enable her husband to preach while others schemed to silence him. And so without him even knowing about it, she began looking for a large meeting room and finally found one on the second floor of a large market house. Baxter began preaching there above the market house every morning with other capable preachers joining him for an, for an evening service every day of the week. And within weeks, they had 800 people crammed up there. On one occasion, when these 800 people were, were just packed into this vast upper room, they heard a loud crack. And apparently, the entire second floor, which was held up by one giant beam, was beginning to give way. And then a second crack. And three things happened all at once. First, Everyone began running for the stairs. Many were climbing out the windows on the ladders. They were running for the hills. Second, Baxter continued preaching, pounding his pulpit, saying, how dare you be afraid? This is the word of God. But no one was listening. He was done at that point. He should have closed in prayer. And the third thing is that Margaret leaped over people, got downstairs almost first. She found a carpenter in the congregation whose shop was around the corner and at her hurried request, he ran and got a massive brace and brought it back and braced the cracking beam in the middle. Margaret made that happen. This act of courage had two effects on Margaret. First of all, it increased her fearfulness, which she continued to fight. And she felt like the Lord was trying to kill her at every, at every stage. And the second effect it had is she determined that Richard ought to preach in places that were built properly. <laughs> and so all on her own, she made a bargain to lease a piece of land and she personally raised all the money to build a brand new chapel. She also built two houses on the land, one for the Baxters and the other for guests. She still had a little money from the fortune of her mother and she spent the rest of it on this project so that her husband could keep preaching. It's the sixth part of our brief theology of marital love. Marital love should be pursued and cherished. Marital love should be pursued and cherished. Once again, the theme of springtime re returns and Shulamith issues an invitation to Solomon. This time she's going to get him away from the palace, away from the intrigue of life with 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. And so first she invites Solomon to the vineyards to walk and then to, the, to lodge in the villages. And what's the point? In the vineyards at the end of verse 12, she says, there, I will give you my love. And in the villages, in some lodge or house they would stay in, verse 13 of chapter 12, the mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. And in other words, she's going to love him in ways that they never even have before. And then she takes him further, all the way to southern Lebanon, to her family home. And we saw last time that now she's 
She's really hinting at having a baby together. The mandrakes of chapter 7, verse 13, were thought to be an aphrodisiac, a reference to her brothers who nursed it with their mother in chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 2, is a reference to the teaching of her mother. In other words, teaching her the ways of intimacy and the ways of making babies. And chapter 3, then, brings that to a culmination or chapter 8, verse 3, rather, His left hand is under my head and His right hand embraces me. An intimate description of their time together in her mother's house. What is Shulamith doing? She's taken Solomon away from all that would distract him. She's brought him to her family home, is ostensibly asking to have a child with him. Why? Because she's pursuing and cherishing their love and it seems to be working. They end this trip on the note of solemn closeness and tenderness. And as they are walking back to Jerusalem together, the daughters of Jerusalem see them. They're walking arm in arm. Chapter five, chapter 8, rather, verse 5. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Shulamith has pursued their love. He has responded. They have cherished one another. And the lesson is very clear for us in our marriages Are you pursuing? Are you cherishing? Or put it this way, are you acting as if today is your last day together? For Margaret, the best gift that she could bring to pursue and cherish her marriage was to be the wisest and most mature woman of God she could. She felt that bringing sanctification into the marriage was her gift. Richard wrote of her after her death that she was, quote, a woman of extraordinary acuteness of wit, Solidity and judgment, incredible prudence and severe, uh, sincere rather, devotedness to God. As part of her wisdom, she believed that intercessory prayer was a key to the faithful Christian life and she prayed for those closest to her long, extended, lofty prayer requests. On one occasion, she wrote a friend all the things that she was praying for on this friend's behalf. I read this letter out loud. It took 11 minutes for me to read it. Those are the things she was praying for her friend. And going back in time to the time of her salvation, as her mother and friends in Kidderminster were looking for the fruit of salvation, one of the things that they gave, that gave great evidence of change was something they discovered that her mother discovered. The house they lived in, to, in next to the church in Kidderminster was a massive mansion which had a large damaged portion in the middle of it. It was, it was damaged in the Civil War of the mid-1600s in England. And the portion just wasn't used. It had never been fixed, but it wasn't used. One day, her mother couldn't find Margaret. And venturing into the unused, damaged portion of the house, she found a closet. And she heard through the door, Margaret, on her knees. Margaret had taken the illustration Jesus gave of a prayer closet, literally. And she went and found a closet. And her mother overheard Margaret praying. And she said that she had never heard such heartfelt, fervent, heavenly prayers. Now, leave it to a mother to do this, but when her mother heard these prayers and knew it was Margaret in her prayer closet, she would bring all the church members who had been praying for Margaret's salvation to sneak in and listen to Margaret praying, standing out there, and they were all amazed at her passionate love for the Lord. Margaret attributed whatever wisdom she had to a life of prayer. She also had a very logical and analytical mind. She was analyzing everything all the time. And compounded with her knowledge of the scriptures, Margaret was a tremendous help to Baxter in problem solving. He wrote this. I'm going to tell you what he wrote and then I'll translate it for you. 
Quote, she would at the first hearing understand the matter better than I could do by many and long thoughts. In other words, she didn't have to think about it. She got it while he was still mulling things over. When it came to matters of the conscience of Christian freedom versus caution, Baxter said she was better at resolving those issues theologically better than any pastor he knew. After Margaret died, Baxter discovered more evidence that she wanted to learn, she wanted to be wise. He didn't know this, but she had kept all the letters that he had written to her, all the answers to her theological questions before they were married in those years before their marriage. I wish I could say that the story of Solomon and Shulamith ended in chapter 8, verse 5. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? And if the curtain came down there, that would be a beautiful ending. But we have one final part of our brief theology of marital love, and that is marital love must be exclusive and holy. Marital love must be exclusive and holy. The second part of chapter 8, verse 5 They're passing the apricot tree. It's not likely an apple tree, more likely an apricot tree. There was not only the tree under which Solomon himself was either conceived or in which his mother went into labor with him, but it was also under the same tree that Shulamith had awakened Solomon's love for her. Chapter 8, verse 5, Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you, and she who bore you was in labor And this is the crucial moment in the whole poem. This is where everything is aiming towards. All throughout, they've been dealing with the problem of other women in Solomon's life, of the political marriages and alliances. But after pursuing and cherishing Solomon, giving him away and being intimate with him many, many times, she makes her request. Verse 6, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. What is she asking him for? She's asking for exclusive rights to him, not to be his favorite love, but to be his only love. And as we saw last time, The white space right after verse 7 screams the silence of Solomon. And as the poem closes, Shulamith withdraws once again like before they were married. She asserts ownership over the vineyard of her own body in verse 12. And she's separate from him and again with her friends like when she is single. She apparently will not take second place in his life, particularly to a bunch of other women. And so she patiently waits And Solomon loves her. Solomon longs for her. In verse 13, O you who dwell in the gardens, he says, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. He longs for her. But history shows that he couldn't bring himself to be rid of his other wives. And yet she continues to invite him on her terms, in her timing now. She continues to woo him, to hope for his love. In verse 14, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. She's saying, I'm here. I'm here. I will give you all of me, but it will be only me because our love must be exclusive. It must be holy. And as the curtain comes down now on this grand love story, as we saw last time, it leaves an unfinished feel to the story. We've come face to face with the fact that relationship, the relationship needs redemption. 
The unfinished business is that sinners, even in a marriage with intense love, need a savior. See, ultimately, Song of Solomon brings us face to face with the fact that a marriage must be made of three. A husband, a wife, and a savior for both. Now, you might be wondering, why on earth do we have all this information about Margaret Baxter? Writing of her life and her marriage, their marriage together was how Richard Baxter worked through the grief of, his lo- of her loss. He wrote in 1681, just after Margaret's death, and at the time, he was the best-known Christian author in, in England, constantly writing books, and yet he stopped everything to write his memoirs of Margaret She had been ill and near death so many times and having endured the near death experience in the market house as well in London, she would continue the battle fear and it didn't help any that that she had multiple friends and neighbors that died of cancer as well. People living close to her and she thought she was next. Eventually she became convinced that because of pain she had breast cancer and taking the prescribed treatments at the time but it didn't do any good and eventually the pain spread to her kidneys her abdomen the strong medications and remedies her doctors tried in fact threw her into delirious thoughts and horrible days of mental anguish the final 10 days of her life were nightmarish but in her lucid times when she was she was there she would cry out to the lord even then submitting to god while asking for help she said lord i submit god chooses what is best for me she sung psalms which she had long ago memorized But she also cried out to God asking for mercy. Her last words on this earth were a prayer. My God, help me, Lord, have mercy on me. And he did. Because with those words, she went home to heaven. The marriage of Richard and Margaret Baxter, I don't present that to you as a perfect example because it wasn't. And we've seen that very clearly. But it was a marriage of three. Richard, Margaret, and their Savior. Their Savior dealt with their sin, made their marriage all it could be in a sinful world. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this time that we've had to just walk one more time through this precious book, Song of Solomon, that rabbis of the past have said that no greater poem has ever been written in all of human history. The Bible itself says that out of the over 1,000 poems that Solomon wrote, this was... This was the best of the best. This is the song of all the songs. But Lord, we're told in James chapter 1 to not merely be hearers of the word, but doers also. And so I pray that these times that we've had in Song of Solomon, Lord, would have a a long-lasting, lingering effect, not only on the marriages within the walls of this church, but perhaps on others as well. I pray, God, that we would never make that faulty distinction between the physical and the spiritual that our marriages are spiritual they are part of our walk with christ and we need christ we need a marriage of three a husband a wife and a savior i pray that would be the effect of these times we've had together lord we thank you for this good word we look forward to seeing what you do with the preached word of god and we pray in christ's name amen